please make us better prayers than we are. Please would these words of Jesus get into our skin, get into our heads, and move our hearts, that we might be changed by your word. We want to be different, and we know that in your hands, with the Spirit at work in our lives, that can be the case. Please make it happen, we pray. For Jesus' sake, we Fresh resolve. I uh, left the bedroom and went next door into my study, went to the bookshelf, and I lifted down a book on prayer. It wasn't the first time I'd done that. The book I chose was clearly one, clearly one that I'd opened before. Uh, I'd even got as far as underlining a few things and scribbling some notes in the margin. But only in the first couple of chapters, I noticed, I clearly didn't get much further uh, with that particular book. It's the same with all the books I have on prayer. When my Christian life is limp, when it's listless, when it's lethargic, the one thing that characteristically gets kicked into touch is praying. Now I, because of my position, can still pretend that I'm doing petitionary prayer because I get to run things like prayer meetings and church services. I run small groups and I meet with individuals and I pray in all of those and I'm happy to do so. But I guess I can pray that when my Christian life is lethargic, I, I am still praying. But I know the truth, even if others don't. And more importantly, so does God. I need encouragement to pray. And I don't think I'm alone. And so I'm just going to assume that you guys are no different. I mean, it would be wonderful if you are. Brilliant, please don't tell me. I just find it <laughs> profoundly discouraging. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that like me, you're a sinner and you're independent, which means you don't naturally want to express your dependency upon God. And so the passage I've chosen for this evening is Luke 18. I need to hear this message, even if no one else does. Now it's not just the parable of the persistent widow, presumably because she's one of the characters in it. But I do think that it's interesting that in verse 6, Jesus doesn't actually refer to her. He says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And I think we'll discover that the illustration that Jesus uses has much more to say to us about the judge than it does about the widow. Now we're going to think about the implications of this parable under four headings. Uh, I apologise, they're not remotely exciting headings, though I think they're useful. Firstly, we're going to think about the effect of the parable. The effect. Secondly, we're going to think about the context of the parable. Thirdly, the story of the parable. Fourthly, the point of the parable. Okay? So pretty straightforward. I hope it's helpful just in terms of working our way through uh, what we've got. 
Let's think first of all then about the effect of the parable. We begin therefore by answering the question, what is this parable for? I mean, why does Jesus tell it at all? Verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now sometimes teaching the Bible has got to be the easiest job in the world, and this may be one of those occasions. Why does Jesus tell us this particular parable? Well, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And so Jesus' intention was that if we take the lessons of this parable to heart, we will simply do two things. Number one, we will always pray. Number two, we won't give up. That's the intended effect of this parable. Jesus wants us to be continuous, not quitters, when it comes to pouring out our hearts to our Heavenly Father. And Jesus thinks that if we actually get what he's saying in this parable, well, actually, it'll do the job. Now, I don't know how you respond to that, but I find that really encouraging. Now, I would love to be someone who prays all the time and doesn't lose heart. I'd love to be someone who naturally, instinctively says, I am going to pray. I've got some spare time at this particular point. I'm not going to watch you know, series two of Borgen. Actually, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'd love to be that person who prays continuously and doesn't grow discouraged. And so, I want what Jesus is offering here. Do you? Do you want to be someone who doesn't have to kind of force and twist themselves to pray, but someone who prays continuously and without quitting. I think if we are, we'll find that what we'll do is we'll hang on Jesus' every word. Jesus knows, you see, that we struggle with prayer. He knows, quite simply, that his disciples will be tempted to lose heart and tempted to give up. Now, I guess he could, at this point, have made us feel very, very guilty for our prayerlessness. I mean, it, just would, it wouldn't be difficult. I mean, not with me. But he doesn't, does he? <coughs> Jesus doesn't condemn his disciples at this point. He teaches them about the necessity of prayer, but then he goes on to give them the encouragement and the motivation that they need in order to change. And so the intended effect of this parable is that actually what we ought to do if we've got it is that we'll emerge encouraged, moved, motivated, that we won't lose heart. And whatever else might be going on in my Christian life, I honestly want what Jesus is offering here. And I take it I'm not alone. Secondly, what about the context of the parable? So before we actually move to the, the great story itself, I think we need to stop for a moment and recognise why, why it's here. Why does Jesus think that we need to keep on praying? Now the answer, I think, has to do with the context in which Jesus gave this particular parable. It's not an, a, a kind of arbitrary story selected at random from Jesus' catalogue of colourful illustrations. Jesus tells the parable in response to the discussion that's been going on from verse 20 of chapter 17 to the end of verse 37. Now we are not going to look at that in any detail now. 
but the heading that the NIV gives it is probably quite helpful. In summary, though, this was a discussion that is prompted by the Pharisees' question, which is recorded for us in verse 20. So, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied. Now, in effect, what they're asking is this. If you're God's promised king, as you and others say that you are, where is God's mighty kingdom that you're supposed to bring? But it doesn't seem to be here. Jesus responded that if they had you know, eyes to see, it was actually right in front of their noses. It was in their midst. It was among them. But Jesus says, you're missing it because you're actually you're looking for the wrong thing. But then, he turns not from the arrival of the kingdom, but the future arrival of the kingdom. Not to his first coming, but to his second coming. He turns his attention to his future return, when he will come in judgment. The time when he will call all things to account and establish the rule and the reign of God finally and totally. And he says, look, let's talk about the importance of being prepared for that. See, Jesus made it clear that eternal life, whether we're part of God's eternal kingdom or not, hangs entirely on whether we are ready for his return or not. So look at verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life like Lot's wife did, will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Now, Lot's wife is a reference back to Genesis. She was a woman who was determined to keep her foot in both camps. She couldn't quite decide whether she wanted to be in the kingdom of God or in the world. And because of that kind of indecision, because actually she didn't want to leave the world behind, she did not survive God's judgment when it fell upon the land. And she was destroyed. She was totally unprepared for God's judgment. Now, Jesus' encouragement here in chapter 18 is part of what it means to be prepared for his return in judgment. These two passages are not disconnected. He's saying judgment is coming. You need to be prepared. Lot's wife wasn't. This is how to be prepared. Let's talk about prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but at that point, that adds a whole degree of significance to whether I pray or not. Doesn't it? Now, in fact, what we notice is that the uh, prayer requests in Jesus' parable are quite specific. Twice in the parable itself, Jesus states that the widow came to the judge seeking justice against her adversary. And twice in the explanation, Jesus states that God will provide justice for his people. Four times then, in this parable, we get this kind of request for vindication, for God to act and to do what is right for his people. Now, I would love the prayer request here to be far more general. It would make my sermon so much more straightforward. I basically just talk about prayer in general and the way in which Jesus encourages it. The trouble is, though, 
Jesus' point is not about all prayer requests in general. It's about specific requests for vindication, for the provision of justice in particular. So I guess to ask the question then, what is therefore the vindication for which Jesus encourages us to pray? I think the logic goes something like this. Let me try and gather up the rambling thoughts you've had from me so far. If we always pray and we don't give up, as Jesus wants us to do, when Jesus returns in judgment at the second coming, we won't be unprepared. And so we won't be left to suffer judgment. Instead, at that very point, God will do what is right. He will vindicate us. He will preserve our life for all eternity. Therefore, we should pray and not give up. So the context then for this whole discussion about praying is Jesus' returning judgment and our need as his disciples to be prepared for that certain future event. Now we'll return to that at the end, where if I've not made it clear, hopefully um, you know, second school through Thirdly, I get to the story of the parable, verses 2 to 5. Uh, it's totally good, isn't it? Now, at this point, we're asking that question, look, what's the plot? What's going on? It's about two characters. They're very different, but they're hugely colourful. One comes wanting justice to another who is in a position to give it. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Jesus said, in a certain time, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what I owe to what people think, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I'm going to see that she gets justice, and that way she won't eventually come and attack me. Jesus refers to one of the characters, therefore, as the unjust judge. He's a deeply unpleasant character. He is astonishingly insensitive to the woman's plight. Did you notice the description that Jesus gave of him in verse 2? He neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And that was a description that he was not unhappy to accept. Uh, you know, so he describes himself in those terms in verse 4. Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, he's a deeply unpleasant, unsavory character, isn't he? The second character is the persistent widow. She's vulnerable uh, and defensive. We have no idea how old she is. She's just on her own. Um, she's, you know, either she's going to have to become a breadwinner somehow or someone else is going to have to provide her. She's vulnerable, she's defenseless. She's been wrongly treated, it would seem, by her adversary, and she cries out for justice, for someone to vindicate her and do what's right by her. She appeals to the judge. Perfectly understandable, perfectly reasonable. And she appeals to the judge for nothing more than she has the right to expect, namely justice. Now initially he refuses to give her what he asks for, but she uses the only weapon that she has left persistence. She pesters the judge until he's worn down by her nagging and then finally and somewhat reluctantly he gives her what she wants. He is a complete scoundrel, isn't he? 
That's the story. Jesus made it up. Brilliant. Very colourful, very vivid. Fourthly, though, what is the point of that parable? See, only now does the rubber hit the road. And it's at this point that Jesus answers the question of what is this parable all about? Let's pick it up in verse 6. And the Lord, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Sorry, Sorry, Jesus, say that again. Listen to what the unjust judge says. Jesus tells his disciples to pay careful attention to the scoundrel. And what, is, what he has effectively said, that is the scoundrel, not Jesus, this woman is a complete pain in the backside. I will give her whatever she's asking for, just so I can get her off my back. Jesus tells us to pay careful attention to those words. What are, we what are we supposed to do with that? I think it would be a great mistake to think that Jesus is telling us to make a nuisance of ourselves, so much so that God will simply give us what we want just to get us off his back. The point of the parable is not the similarity between the unjust judge and God. The point of the parable is the dissimilarity between the unjust judge and God. God is not like the unjust judge who needs to be pestered. That's the point. He doesn't need persuading. God doesn't need pestering. God doesn't need plaguing. Now, Jesus makes that point with two rhetorical questions. You know those kind of questions that he kind of throws up, not expecting an answer because the answer is so obvious. The first is this. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? And the second is, will he keep putting them off, just brushing them off? Now Jesus asks, answers sorry, both those questions in verse 8. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Verse 8, I tell you, he will see they get justice. There you go, the first question answered. The second, will he keep brushing them off? No. Look at the end of verse 8. And quickly. The point is that God is not an unjust judge who needs to be badgered to give his subjects what, in fact, they have the right to expect. Did you notice how Jesus describes his disciples? Those who come to him with their request for vindication are described as, do you see it? His chosen ones. They are his. They belong to him. They are the ones whom he has chosen. Now the question of God's sovereign election of his people can at times raise our hackles, if not a whole load of questions. Sometimes we don't like the idea that we have had nothing at all to do with God's choice of us, with his selection of us. Now when you think about it for a moment, that is actually perverse. Because what we're saying at that point is, I don't like the idea of God's grace. I don't like that. 
I like to think that I've done something to earn my selection, that it is in some ways justified that God has picked me for his team. But it doesn't work like that. God's grace towards us means that he undeservedly chooses the undeserving. And Jesus' purpose in mentioning election at this point is to reassure us. If we are a Christian, then we are God's. We belong to him. He's chosen us. He's decided that he would bring us close to himself, that he would become our loving Heavenly Father. He's chosen us to belong to him. And so when we pray, what are we doing? We're coming to someone who says, I want you in my family. That's extraordinary. His chosen ones. Now that makes all the world of difference to our praying, doesn't it? If we know that when we pray, we come to someone who is saying, you, despite who you are, I want you to know me. I want you to know my love. I want you to have the experience of me answering your requests. Does that not make all the difference in the world to our praying? Think about it for a moment. Let me try and illustrate it. As I've said, I've got three kids, Rufus, Flora, and Pippi. Now, there are, there are undeniably times when they will try and pester me to get what they want. My daughter is the worst, and she's clever in a devious sort of way. The boys are much, much more obvious, and therefore they are far less successful. <laughs> but they all come from time to time, trying to twist my arm into giving them something that they know, given what I'm like, that I don't want to give them. So the big issue for us at the moment is screen time. You know, whether it's Xbox, playing on the, uh, on the Google Nexus, whether it's watching TV, or, you know, just screen time. And they know a point comes where I think, no, no, enough is enough. No, it's just not going to happen. And they're devious and clever and they can't make it happen. And they will try and twist my arm. But it is very, very different when they come to me with a request for which they have every right to expect an answer. When that happens, they don't have to try very hard at all. Daddy, can I have a cuddle? Now, my seven-year-old boy is still at that stage where he's a little bit like a monkey and he clings to you. He clings to you, not it, sorry, Digby. He's not a bit, he's a he. <laughs> and it's great, and it moments of affection. I want that. Now, that is not a difficult request to give to me. I love my kids passionately. They don't, I don't have to try very hard to fulfil those requests where they know I want to give things to them. If they make a request of me and they know that I want to give them the answer, it's not difficult. I'm their father. I love them. Their well-being matters hugely to me. I want them to be provided for. I want them to have everything that I think that they need as their father. They don't actually have to persuade me. Now, it works the same way with God, doesn't it? In Jesus choosing to describe his disciples as his chosen ones, he's saying, guys, you're in the family. God is not an unjust judge. He's a compassionate father. He's after your well-being. This is not difficult. You're not going to need to plague him with your requests. And so do you notice that the way in which Jesus encourages us to pray is by convincing us of what? That we need to pray? 
No. I convinced myself that was character. He's not the unjust judge. Get that view of him out of your mind. If you think of God like that, you will never pray. God is a compassionate Father. He chose us to belong to him. His willingness to answer our requests is not in question. He's on our side. You will never know anyone in your life who is more for you than him. Do you want to talk to him? Why wouldn't you? We pray to God who sent his one and only son into the world to live the life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserve to die. He did not hold back anything from us to solve our ultimate issue. Do we really imagine for a moment that God is going to withhold anything from us now that he thinks that we need? Not a chance. We don't need to do anything extra to persuade him to listen or to answer. God could not be any more for us than he was on the day when he sent his son to die on the cross. So what is the point then of the parable? It's very simple, isn't it? God is our loving heavenly father. We're his chosen ones. Let me conclude. The intended effect of Jesus' parable is that we will persevere in persistent prayer and not give up. Now the immediate context that Jesus gives those instructions in is this kind of imminent return of Jesus Christ in judgment for which we must all be prepared. The story of the parable is about an insensitive unjust judge who reluctantly answered impassioned pleas of a powerless widow just simply to get her off his back. But the important point of the parable, fourthly, is that God is not like that. But did you notice how Jesus ended? Verse 8, halfway through. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Yeah, hang on a second. Sorry, Jesus. We've not been talking about faith up until this point. What do you do? We talk about prayer. What's going on? Now, that is a question that Jesus poses to his disciples. Pretty challenging, so I guess we could uh, entitle the conclusion the challenge of the parable. Because Jesus does ask a pointed question. It's though he says to his disciples, Look, when I come back at my second coming, will I discover that you have been expressing your faith in me by praying? He's not talking about something different here. Prayer is the expression of faith that Jesus is looking for. If we say that God is our Father, the way we express that conviction will be by talking to him. It's how we show that we trust him, which is what faith is. It's what we do when we really rely on Christ. So if Jesus were to come back tonight, would he discover that we've been praying? And that's the question that Jesus comes back to us with. 
Now, as I close, let me speak very briefly to three groups of people. First of all, let me speak to those of us here who have never prayed. You need to know that God is willing to be your Father. He sent Jesus Christ into the world in order that sinners like you and me might not know him as a judge, but trust and follow and love him as a father. I do not know what you think of him at the moment. I don't know what view you have of God in your mind's eye. But you do need to know that the God of the Bible, the God who is, is not someone who is unjust, who needs to be manipulated to come onto your side. He can be someone whom you can turn to to rescue you from the coming judgment. He can be someone whom you turn to and ask that you might be part of his eternal kingdom. The question that this parable poses to you is this. Will you trust him as your father? Sounds like uh, Christianity Explore Mini is the, way, is the way to go if you want to pursue those kind of questions. Secondly, let me speak to those of us who stopped praying. We may think of ourselves as a Christian. We may describe ourselves as a Christian. We may, in fact, have an impeccable reputation as a Christian. But let me state the obvious. If we have stopped praying, then we are living as though we do not know that God is our Father. We're not actually living as a Christian. And that is just completely bonkers. Isn't it? It's part of the inconsistency of the Christian life. I know that God is my Father. I know that Jesus Christ died for me. I know those things. And yet, I pray. I don't actually live as though that matters. I get it on Sunday when I come to church, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I just forget it. It is bonkers. It's utterly inconsistent. And somehow we've found a way of doing it, of living like that. But it is just completely ridiculous. Thirdly, finally, let me speak to those of us who are struggling with prayer. And I take it at this point I'm speaking to the majority of us. This has been a parable in what Jesus has wanted to do is change the way in which we think about God. He is aware that we might have an image of God that's not going to help stimulate us and motivate us towards prayer. And so he's addressed the mind. We've got to change how we think about God and make sure that our conception of him is the God of the Bible, not the God of our imagination. Now the effect of that conviction in our heads, kind of taking root in our hearts, is in our minds, is that we'll actually begin to feel different about him. We'll feel confident about approaching him, regardless of the life that we've lived. Regardless of the Friday night or the Saturday night or the whatever it is, we'll want to approach him. We'll want to make requests because our head tells us he is my father. 
and therefore I'll feel emotionally warm and drawn towards him. And so we'll actually end up changing the way we act towards God. Prayer won't be a duty that we perform so that we feel we've ticked a list and we can walk into church with a clear conscience. Or if someone decides they're going to interfere in our Christian life and say, are you praying at the moment? You can say, yes, and you've got them off your back. It'll become what we want to do, not just what we ought to do. Jesus was convinced that the way to get us praying was actually to get us thinking about God. Remembering who God is will encourage us to ask him for things. He is our compassionate, loving, heavenly Father. And we are his chosen ones. I'm going to give you a minute to pray, just where you are, in the quietness of your own hearts.